turn in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our study through the Word. So Ecclesiastes, King Solomon trying to figure out life apart from the afterlife. How, how does this life making the sense if if we don't know what happens to a person after they go into the grave then how should we live and so the book of ecclesiastes really is about solomon's observations and solomon trying to use his wisdom you'll remember that god had imparted to him great wisdom when god came to solomon and asked him when he had just ascended to the throne ask and I will give it to you. And you'll remember that what Solomon asked for was wisdom to be able to rule over your people. And so God poured that wisdom out on him. And, and now, apart from revelation of God, apart from God breaking through and revealing truth to us, how does this world make sense? And you'll remember last time where we left off in the eighth chapter, he was wrestling through the issue that no matter how you live, death comes for you. That the wise person, guess what? They've lived in, in wisdom and they die. The fool, they're foolish all it, and they die. The rich, they don't escape death. The poor, that doesn't help them escape death either. That, that in the end, death is coming for every single one of us. And, and it doesn't matter what you do, you are going to die. So now that you know that fact, right? I've encouraged you with that wonderful exhortation. You know, Solomon's trying to figure out then, then what's life all about? He's like, there's seasons. I, I, I observe seasons. There's weeks and months and years and, uh, and all things come, things go. He says, but you still die. You can laugh and, and live your life and, and that's not going to change anything. You can acquire a lot of money, but you can't take that with you. You're going to leave that all behind. So apart from God, how does this world make sense? How does life make sense? If the grave was the end of it all, and that's it, you lived and you died and that was it, then how should you live your life? And here in this first verse of this ninth chapter, this is again the topic that he is is bemoaning and that he is working through. He says, for I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. And people know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. We see that Solomon here is saying that he saw good people and he saw wise people and, and all that they do. That, that that's in the hand of God. He says, and, and whether though what will happen to them is a sign of God's love or God's judgment, no one knows. The, the reality is the entire future is unknown. And the future from 
Earth's perspective is unknowable. We, we can't see one second into the future of, of what is going to happen. He says, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who takes an oath as he who fears uh, uh, an oath. All things come alike to all. What, what he is saying is that everybody is headed for the grave. The worshiper is headed for the grave. The non-worshipper is headed for the grave. The good, the clean, and the unclean. And, and so as far as escaping death is concerned, the righteous person has no advantage over the wicked. The righteous is uh, still going to die, and the unrighteous is going to die. And so from that perspective of death's perspective, we see that there is no difference between those two. He said, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all things there is hope, to all the living there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. And so this is an evil. He says that the, the great calamity of life is death. That death is going to come to all classes of, uh, of men. People can live outrageous, insane lives. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, death. But what is this but gross injustice if death is the end of existence? If the good and the evil both uh, die and that's the end of it, then he sees that as an injustice. He, he, he says then, do you know what? The living are better off than the dead. He, he says if death is just the end of it, and uh, he says in that sense, a living dog is better off than a, a dead lion. What does that mean? <laughs> well, first of all, I want you to know when he says a dog, he's not talking about the pet that you have with ribbons on and that you get shampooed and sit on a pillow and, and all of that. You know, he, he's talking about a dog uh, being uh, now one of the lowest, meanest forms of, uh, of animal life. And he contrasts that to the regal lion. He, he says that the living dog is better than the dead lion. Life, being alive then, is better than death. For the living know that they will die, verse 5, but the dead know what? Nothing. They don't know anything. And they have no more regard, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished, and never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And so, at least uh, he is saying that the, uh, the living know that they're going to die. He says, but the dead, they don't know anything about what's going on in the world. I, I want you to know that, that this verse is constantly used by uh, false teachers to prove that the soul sleeps in death, that consciousness 
ceases when the last breath is taken. But here's the thing that we have to remember. We will never take, you don't ever take anything out of the book of Ecclesiastes and form doctrine out of it. Because what is Ecclesiastes? It is Solomon trying to understand the world apart from what happens after we die. So these are his uh, observations. We have the truth of God's word is revelation. Here we see that in Ecclesiastes, there's no revelation from God. This is just man trying to understand the world that is uh, around us. Uh, and so uh, we see that, you know, if we don't have revelation, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is what a, a wise person might think if God hadn't revealed any truth to him. You know, if you see a person die and you watched his body as it was lowered into the grave, knowing that it's going to eventually return to dust, then you might think that's, that's the end. That's the end of them. They can't enjoy any activities they're going on. He's forgotten and will soon be forgotten. And so here we see that once a person has died, Solomon is saying there is no more love, there's no more hatred, there's no more envy, there's no, other, there's no more human emotion. And never again are they going to uh, have a share in any of this world's uh, activities and experiences. But we have the revelation of God's truth that tells us that absolutely we continue to live after death, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're not in this unconscious state of, uh, of soul sleep or soul annihilation. You, you were formed in the image and likeness of God. You were given a soul and your soul is, is eternal. But if God didn't tell us that, how would we know that? And so here in the absence of that, these are Solomon's uh, conclusions. And, and some of what Solomon has to say in Ecclesiastes is, is true, and some of it is, is misguided. And, and so it's important when you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes to recognize that this is a, a, an intellectual exercise of Solomon trying to understand the world uh, that is uh, around him. He says in verse 7, then if that's the case, he says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack uh, no uh, oil. So here we see that Solomon comes back to this conclusion of then live your life, enjoy, have a good time, enjoy your food and, and God has already approved uh, what you do you, you living out your life before him, uh, this, is, this is acceptable to God, he says let your garments always be white, what does that mean? let your garments always be white, are we only supposed to wear white? is that the, you know is this what we would take from that? no, you'll remember that there was clothing for mourning, okay and the mourning in the sack Cloth. But when you were going to a feast, when you were going to a celebration, white garment was the, uh, was the garment. So it's saying, wear your bright clothes, wear your fun clothes, wear your celebrate. May you always be dressed uh, in white. May you always be uh, celebrating and let your head lack no oil. Again, being uh, anointed uh, with uh, oil. Live joyfully 
with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in labor which you perform under the sun. Is he a little bitter here? Or, you know, but once again, what's the first line of, uh, of Ecclesiastes? You know, is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so he's saying, you know, it, it lacks purpose. It lacks an enduring impact. And so your life isn't going to have an enduring impact. You are not going to live forever. And, and so in this life here, enjoy your life because that's all you're going to get. This is all you get, this life. And Nothing else. He has no evidence that anything else uh, happens uh, except that people live and then they uh, are buried. And, and so he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. And so whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. We see that this is an exhortation to zeal and, and diligence. I want you to know that this verse is oftentimes used uh, and is one of the best known uh, in the book to encourage Christian service. And, uh, and so whatever you put your hand to, do, do it with, uh, with zeal. Do it with uh, might. Um, but it's just interesting because the context uh, of this isn't Christian service. The context of this is, you know, pleasure, enjoyment, wearing white garments, uh, you know, having oil anointed on your, uh, on your head. And, and so uh, here we see that once again, context uh, is important. But the maxim uh, is true. Because throughout the Bible talks about stewardship and talks about serving unto the Lord, giving him your absolute best, not being lazy, not being a, a sluggard, and, uh, and so bringing a gift that is acceptable before the Lord. So the maxim here in verse 10 uh, is true. Uh, just the context uh, is different. Verse 11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. We see that now Solomon looks at the issue of, of good luck. And, and there's people that have good luck, and then there's just bad luck. There's being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and then there's good fortune. And, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter the, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, that, that these things, you know, transpire. And once again, that, that, that it happens to the whole spectrum of a society. Time and chance are factors that play an important role in, in success and failure. J. Paul Getty from Getty Oil is a billionaire. And he was being interviewed and, and he was asked to explain his incredible success. And this is what he said. He said, some people find oil and some don't. 
and that was his explanation. You know, there's all these people searching for oil, and, and here, one person finds it, and the guy that was right next to him was off by 10 feet. He didn't find it, and, and how do you explain that? How do you explain the, the good fortune, the providence of some in that? And then also, you, you will remember that Jesus was, was asked about there was a, a construction disaster that took place, a tower that fell down and it killed a number of people. And Jesus said, do you think that those were the most wicked people that there were in, in that village, that, that this was a judgment now that God singled them out, pulled them all together and then dropped a tower on, you know, on top of them? And, and the answer is, is no. God doesn't work like that. We see here that, that, that the good and the bad falls upon everybody. Jesus said, in this world you will have, you're going to have tribulation. The, the good have tribulation and the, and the bad have tribulation. There's honest farmers and there are wretchedly dishonest farmers. And yet the clouds, they drop their rain on both of those farms. You know, the cloud doesn't come through and, and turn and avoid that person and drops its rain there and then turn, gives them a little bit of rain. The next one showers them, you know, with it. The rain falls on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And, you know, and so <laughs> Solomon here is, you know, he's trying to understand and to, and to work out all of these principles here. He says, for man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly uh, upon them. No one knows when, when bad luck is going to strike, like fish that are just suddenly caught in a net or a bird that is uh, taken now in a snare. It says that we can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that's just bad fortune. Bad fortune even unto death. Look at what's going on in the Ukraine today. Look at how a year and a half ago, Kiev was just celebrating, thriving. Everybody is just enjoying life. And, and then the next thing you know, apartments are being shelled and bombed and innocent people are just being absolutely killed over there. Civilians are being targeted. And do and, and you know what? We see that they are suddenly caught in an evil time. And they're in the middle of it. Are they in it because that they're the worst people on the earth and now suddenly this is, this is what's going on? And Solomon says, no. You can just suddenly enter into an evil time and you have no idea that, it, that it's coming. We have no idea what's going to happen to any of us. We have no idea what will happen to our nation, to the, uh, to the world, apart from the revelation of God. God's told us the end from the beginning. Amen? So we know exactly what is going to happen. 
We know the alignment of nations that is going to take place. We, we know that this world is going to form a one world government. We know that there is going to be an antichrist that is going to rise up. We know that we are in the end times. How do we know all of this? The word of God, the word of God, the word of God. And apart from that, we don't, we don't know anything. We don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring for, for each and every one of us. But God who stands outside of time is the one that has declared and laid forth the, the future. Why? So that you might know that he's the true and the living God and there is no other. In the book of Isaiah, it declares that you might know that I am the true and the living God and there is no other God. I can't begin to tell you if you were to sit down and have a conversation with me how much that single verse impacted my life. That you might know. And that word for know in the original language means without any doubt whatsoever, with absolute certainty, that you might know, God says, that I am the true and the living God and there is no other God. To get personal for a minute, my whole life, I've just wanted to know the truth. I just want to know the truth. And, and truth is a word that you have all the different religions that, that are throwing that around. And I remember personally for me, I, I was young. I, I think I was 10 or 11, maybe 12. And what I noticed was in my neighborhood, my best friends, we all went to the same school. So every day we jumped on the same bus, we rode the same bus, went to the same school, came back and got back off. But on the weekends, we all went to different houses of worship. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. That was like my sudden awareness, you know, of we have this, uh, we have this difference. And, you know, one was Episcopalian, one was Protestant, and, you know, and I was Catholic, you know. And so I was pondering that question, like, what makes a person, I, don't, I didn't even know these names. They're like, yeah, we're Episcopalians. I'm like, What's that, you know, but, but I'm not a one and you are. And, and, and so again, you know, I, I just asked my mom, you know, I, I, I was like, mom, Joey is Episcopalian and Robin and his brother, they're Protestants, but I'm a Catholic. Why am I a Catholic? <laughs> And she gave me one of those mom answers. You know, she just smiled and patted my head and said, because you're lucky, son. <laughs> you know, and, 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 I'm, and, you know, and I went, nice try, mom, you know, and I, you know, and I walked off. But, you know, what it really did is it really started, you know, that they think that they've got the truth or they think that they've got the truth. And as I got older, it was, you know, those were just branches of Christianity. But then, you know, Judaism and the world religions and, you know, and the Buddhists and, and, and Eastern mysticism and all of that. And, and who's right? Who's God? Because they're definitely different gods, right? You know, you get back that because they become mutually exclusive on this. So they, they are not the same gods. So which God is, is the true God? Sometimes people would explain it like the elephant, you know. Three people were blindfolded with a blindfold, and, and they now were 
brought to an elephant to experience the elephant and and afterwards they they then explained what what they thought an elephant was and the first one said that an elephant is it's like this long rope that has this furry thing at the end of it and and that's what an elephant is and the next one said no it's not it's like a sequoia it, the, the thing is it, it's round and huge and muscular and strong and and the third one said, you know absolutely not you know it's it, it is this snake that has two holes at the end that breathe in and out and it's wet which one is right Some people think that about God, that the truth is none of them are right. The truth is an elephant is an elephant. He, he has all of those parts, but that's not what, what he is. He's much bigger than that. Some people think that, you know, that you can approach God from every different angle that there is, and it's the same God that, you know, Buddhists are worshiping the same God, and Muslims are worshiping the same God, and Jews are worshiping the same God, and everybody's worshiping the same God. They maybe just have a different piece of the, you know, of the same God. But as you study the Old Testament, you, you see that God is jealous to be worshiped as the true and the living God, and there is no, what? And there is no other God. There is no other. So God wanted to give us an ability to settle that issue. That you might be absolutely rock solid in, in your faith. That you don't have to question if, if you're worshiping a part of what the overall truth is. I mean, if, if God's above us and, and his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts, then, then maybe everybody only gets a slice of, of understanding God and maybe we're all right. But in the book of Isaiah, God dispels that notion as absolutely false. He says that you might know that I am the true and the living God, and there is no other God. He says, I will tell you the end from the beginning. The end from the beginning. I will seed my word with prophecies in the absolute minutest of details. Not, not generalities, not broad stroke stuff that might possibly refer to something vaguely and you can force it into a, a, a part of history and, and, and no precision absolute accuracy that you might know that I'm the true and the living God and there is no other God and so God has made a way for us to know him he has revealed himself but he has also given us a way to know the authentic from, from the counterfeit. And Satan is a master deceiver, amen? It says that he masquerades as an angel of, an angel of light. See, as a false god. See, that's his masquerade. <laughs> now, he's, he's always wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to re replace the true and the, the, the living God. Letter of rebellion. Took a third of the angels uh, with him. And that hasn't stopped. And so the false religions of the world are worshiping a deception that, that is demonic in its form, but God has given us the word of God that we are able 
to be able to discern between the true and the false. And so the, the word of God that, that we have uh, here, we see that this is given to us. And, and so it, it helps us to understand who God is, who I am, and what my purpose is. Sometimes men are snared in evil times. Solomon has observed. It's not that they were bad men. It's not that they deserved it. It's just that evil times come and evil times go. And people are going to be caught in the times in which they are living in. He says, this wisdom I also have seen under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. And now there was found in it a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. We see that there's this small city, powerful king surrounds it artillery prepares to break through the walls the situation seemed hopeless in this this man who was very wise he was very poor but he was very wise came forward with a plan that saved the city in the moment he was a hero but then afterwards quickly forgotten and then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised as his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. And so here we see again that the words of the wise, even if they're spoken softly, quietly, are worth more than the shouting of powerful rulers that are foolish. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so here again, we see the, the practical application of that is a little leaven leavens the whole lump, the contamination factor of the sin. And don't play with sin. Don't try and, and keep it as a pet and think that you can contain it and corral it and, and keep it under control. It will corrupt and continue to corrupt and have devastating consequences. In verse 1 here of this 10th chapter, he says, Dead flies purify the perfume's ointment and gives it and cause it to give off a foul odor. And so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. He's talking about a, a reputation. A person works hard, build a good reputation, a good name for themselves. They, they are decorated, they are honored, they have a tremendous resume. But then one incident in their life can destroy all of it. One lapse of judgment, and that's all people will ever remember was that lapse of judgment. And everything, all the suffering and the achievements and, and the work that went into that resume is destroyed with a little bit of mm, folly. And Solomon is warning, don't let 
your guard down. Because your life's work can be wiped out with a stumble and with a fall. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. And and so we see that the right hand is considered to be, you know, dexterous and, and stronger than the, the left hand. Sorry about all of you who are left-handed. If, if you're left-handed, put your, put your hand. I'm just mm, kidding. I say that because my wife is left-handed. Uh, and so, woo, yeah, let's give her an applause for left-handed. All right. <laughs> Do you want to come up and say a few words about that uh, uh, at all? I'm in trouble. I just want you to know. <laughs> Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. And he shows everyone that he is a, a, a fool. And here, what is Solomon saying? Is, is that a fool can't hide his foolishness. He, he, he exposes it in, in every situation, in every circumstance that, uh, that he's in. Even when he's walking along the, the way, he, he is showing everyone that he, he lacks wisdom. There's that old saying that says, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 4, if the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. So if a ruler explodes in anger on you, it's best not to just quit in a huff and to depart. It's better to be submissive, to be conciliatory, and this is more apt to pacify the, uh, the ruler and, and also to atone for, uh, for any serious mistakes as, uh, as well. There is an evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in lowly place in a lowly place. And I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. Here we see that Solomon is challenging that, that maxim that says that the cream always, what? Rises to the top. Here he's saying, do you know what? I, I haven't experienced that. There are fools that end up being exalted into positions of authority and, and power while intelligent, powerful individuals are, are passed uh, over. I've seen servants on horses. So he's talking about misplaced uh, honor and without suitable qualifications. And men with talent that are stuck in menial tasks. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. And so he who digs a, a pit will fall into it. When revenge is the motive of your heart, when you are trying to hurt somebody else, that ultimately is going to backfire on you. It's going to ultimately backfire on you. God says this to us, let me be the judge and you just work on loving everybody. 
But when you try and mete out punishment to others, try and harm others, God doesn't want you harming others. And so here we see that a person who digs a pit, they're going to fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. We see the, the walls, either he's talking about unlawful entry or just mischief or to change a property line. We see that again, being bitten by a serpent means that there is a, a consequence that is going to take place. You are not going to prosper. He who quarries stone may be hurt by them. He who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. So in verse 9, where he's talking about when you're quarrying stone, you can get hurt in the quarry. It's a dangerous place. Stones are big and heavy and accidents uh, happen. Working in, you know, in, in dangerous situations, even legitimate activities have risks that are attached to them. Life carries no guarantees. It's a risky business and accidents happen. He says now with wisdom, he says that if the ax is dull, and you don't sharpen the edge. If you try and chop wood with a dull axe, you're going to have to exert a lot of energy. He says it's better to take a few minutes, sharpen the axe, and that time that it took you to stop and sharpen that axe will be more than redeemed by the ability to chop easier and faster and, and with less labor. And so wisdom teaches shortcuts and ways of, of saving unnecessary effort. That's wisdom. Looking at something and saying, what's the best way to approach it? A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness. And the end of his talk is raving madness. And so, the words of a wise man's mouth, they bring him favor because they're gracious. God wants us to be gracious. Graciousness. How are you in this area of your life? Are you a gracious person? How would we define a gracious person? And, and measuring ourselves uh, against that, that standard of, of being gracious. Well, I would define it once again as the fruit of the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That's graciousness. Gentleness. That's graciousness. Kindness. So gentleness means that when someone is not gentle with you, you're able to still be gentle with them. Kindness means when someone is not kind to you, how do you respond? But kindness says, I'm going to respond with kindness even when I'm not being treated kindly. That's graciousness. That's the manifestation of the, of the fruit that's in our lives. That's the manifestation of loving others. Is it easy? No. 
it takes a denial of, of self because the flesh wants to rise uh, up when someone hurts me. My flesh, <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> it wants to, to hurt back. When I'm offended, it, it wants to mm, offend. But when I die to the flesh, right, I crucify the flesh on a what frequency? daily basis uh, right then then i'm gonna respond in uh, with kindness it's hard that's that's the daily growth see i have a heart of stone <laughs> and god is trying to take that heart of stone and and make it a heart of flesh and that's that that's that process and and it's a daily challenge for for all of us. And, and so here he says, though, that, that, that a wise man's mouth brings him favor because they're gracious. The words that he's using are, are gracious. I grew up on the East Coast, and the East Coast is known for being aggressive, known for being fast and pace, being using more force than is necessary to achieve objective. And, and so here we see the exact opposite of, of a mouth that are filled with grace. Filled with grace. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? And so he says, a, a, a fool... They talk on and on and on, he says, as if they know everything, as if they're a, uh, an expert. But the truth is, who, who even knows what will happen tomorrow? Right? Tomorrow isn't even promised to, to anyone. And so the, the multitude of, uh, of words that the, that the fool uses, the labor of fools wearies them. <laughs> they do not even know how to go to the city. We see that the, the little bit of work that a, that a fool does exhausts them. They're so exhausted. You, you've worked for five minutes. I'm exhausted. I need, I need a coffee break. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so they, they are unproductive. It, it says that they're foolish. They don't even, they don't even know how to go to the city. That, so you have the common paths that go right into the city, and, and so they don't even know how to walk on the main path that leads them right into the city. Probably a, a, a saying that expresses this the best is, is that, you know, he's so foolish he doesn't even know to come in out of the rain. That, that's the expression here that doesn't even know how to walk to the main city. And yet... In simple matters, he makes these illustrious plans, but he won't work to accomplish any of the plans. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles. And your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. 
Solomon's talking now about the appropriate purpose of a feast. There are those that use a, a, a feast as an opportunity to get drunk, <laughs> as an opportunity to just uh, party. And so it's, you know, Martin Luther King Day, woohoo! It's Cinco de Mayo, woohoo! It's, you know, post office day, woohoo! You know, I mean, and so they're just, you know, they're using every opportunity to just feast, you know, which is nothing more than drunkenness. He says, but. There is a proper feasting that brings about strength. When you draw together, when you invest with uh, one another, when you share that Thanksgiving meal, and, and when you are exchanging that love, and, and so when you are forming community and knitted together, so there is a, there is a purpose. It's not an excuse. There is this wonderful expectation. How many of us have these amazing memories of our Christmases and our Thanksgivings and our Easter's and the, the food and the meals and the special things that, uh, that would take place. And, and those feasts created memories and they created traditions and they created uh, identity, many of which we then pass on to the, to the next generation, to our uh, children as, uh, as well. And so these feasts, he says, when, uh, when you have wise leaders He's talking about family leaders as well, your households and, and how you're going to conduct yourself. There, there's a feasting that, uh, that just dissipates and there's feasting that is wonderfully productive and marvelous. And, and so the same feast is going to come by. Which path did we walk on and what did we leave behind at the end of that feast. Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. And so we see here that, uh, that once again, one of the themes that Solomon talks about is you know, not being lazy, not being a, a sluggard in your life. And he says that if, if there isn't proper attention, proper maintenance done to, uh, to buildings, there, it is going to decay. Everything requires energy to keep it going. And, and so the, the building decays. He, he's talking here also about <coughs> our marriages and our homes. Every marriage is going to take work. Without energy, without effort, without purpose, then, then that relationship that started off so wonderfully is going to decay because the work isn't being put into it. Great marriages don't happen by accident. They happen by two people loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, crucifying their flesh and serving one another. And learning how to do that graciously, forgiving each other, being long-suffering with one another, gentle and kind to one another. When you're putting that effort in to not let your flesh rule, to not let your flesh be in your house, that's going to take effort. Laziness is just going to let the flesh have its way and the flesh will tear down 
the covenant of marriage. And so idleness of the hands, the, the house is going to leak. It's true in our own houses. It's true in the house of the Lord as well. Being able to come alongside of one another and serving the fellowship, serving the body of Christ, using our gifts to be able to be the very best family that, uh, that we can be so that we can love God's people, the very absolute best that we are able to. But no congregation is going to be able to, to love the person that comes in if they're lazy congregation, if, if they are just wanting to be served instead of um, participating in that. Then the house is going to leak and, and the building is going to decay. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Did you know that? <laughs> There's an old saying that says that money will buy anything except happiness and a ticket to heaven. And so here we see that uh, once again, the, the temptation to rely upon money. And yet, we see the reality is that, <coughs> that when God allows people to be wealthy, there's a stewardship over that wealth that he has given to them as well. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter, or Alexa may be listening <laughs> in your house. <laughs> you know, it, it's crazy. I love Alexa. You can ask so many questions. You know, what time is it? What's the weather today? And all of that. But Alexa is always listening. Uh, and so that's just interesting, you know, it's always on and always, you know, listening. Here, here we see that, you know, it's saying, be careful not to speak evil against authorities. Be careful not to speak uh, evil uh, against uh, those that have power. It says, be careful. Because here we see that a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. In the Second World War, technology and communication had increased, but there was great concern about the spread of that information being able to be gained by spies as well. And, and so they really cautioned everybody in the military and also in, in our nation uh, to be careful not to give addresses uh, of ships and locations and letters that were being sent and, and where people were being deployed and, uh, and all of that because you just never knew when that information uh, would get into the wrong hands. And, and so they had this campaign that and posters were put out and all that kind of education. And maybe you'll remember the phrase that said that loose lips 
sink ships by the enemy knowing the location of our ships, if in the letters and all the that uh, ships could be sunk and innocent lives could be lost. And so it, it, it was that don't be careless with your words. And that's really what Solomon is pointing to here, here at the end is don't be careless. Don't be careless with the, the king, the powerful people, but don't be careless, period. The Bible says and talks about how difficult controlling the tongue is. It says it's a small member, but how, how it is impossible for, uh, for any of us to be able to control uh, the tongue. And that's, you know, and that's interesting, but it says that the tongue is unruly and no one can control it. But that doesn't mean that it can't be controlled. It just means that no amount, listen to this, that no amount of self-discipline is ever going to be able to capture and contain it when you're emotionally charged and when you are emotionally inflamed. You see, the flesh cannot corral the flesh. There needs to be a power stronger than the flesh to be able to control the flesh. And that power is, of course, the Holy Spirit that is now indwelling within each and every one of us. It says when you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh or the outbursts of the, uh, of the flesh as, uh, as well. And so here we see once again that necessity of putting on the armor of God, crucifying the flesh, and then seeking to walk in the spirit and to love everybody around us let's pray father god we can't do that on our own we we confess that that we fall miserably in short and and the glor glorious truth is that you never asked us to do it on our own jesus you said that you're the the vine and that we're the branch and apart from you separated from you disconnected from you we're not going to be able to do anything not able to do anything that the Word of God commands us. Not able to do anything that is going to please the Father because no work of the flesh is acceptable in your eyes. Oh God. Just the work of the Spirit. And so, Father, would you continue? You, you've started a good work in each and every one of us. And you're faithful to complete that good work. Would you help us to grow as believers, to be able to reflect your love and your character to those that are around us? Keep us close to you. Keep us connected. And God, help us when we stray. You're the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go and get that one. Lord, go get them. And go get us when we start to step off of the, the path that is pleasing unto the Father. The Holy Spirit changes from the inside and out. Father God, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.